Hi coaches, Danielle McNamara here, the Director of Coach Education at the ITA. And today I had the chance to sit down as the host of the ITA College Coaches Podcast and interview our very own Dave Mullins. You probably know Dave best as the current COO of the ITA, but he was also a very successful college tennis player at Fresno State and then a longtime tennis coach at DePaul, Northwestern, and then the University of Oklahoma before turning to more administrative roles in the world of tennis. In this episode, we hear about Dave's perspective and opinions on important issues like the format of college tennis, college tennis being televised and streamed, his advice to newer coaches starting out in the profession, as well as those coaches who may be nearing the end of their careers, and much more. Well, Dave, welcome to the podcast. You're sitting on the other side of the desk today, and I'm excited to interview you. I was hoping that maybe, I know you've been an integral part of the ITA for many years and and in the college tennis world for many years as a coach, but maybe for the listeners that don't know you quite as well, could you take us through a little bit of the pathway that you've taken from coming over from Ireland to play college tennis to kind of where you are today with your role at the ITA? Okay, well, Danielle, thank you for having me on my, uh, I guess, my own podcast, but uh, I will be handing the reins over to you for uh, season four, but uh, it's funny to be on this side, and it's great to have you as part of the ITA now. Loved uh, every minute working with you since since January, so uh, keep doing what you're doing. But yeah, my, my background, grew up in, in Dublin, Ireland, uh, always knew that I wanted to come over to the States on a tennis scholarship and was fortunate to, uh, we didn't really have any internet back in the day. So just stumbled my way to getting a scholarship at Fresno State and played for coach Michael Hegarty and absolutely was blown away by the experience that I had. Just can't, when you come from another country, you can't wrap your head around the facilities, the resources, you know, this whole team concept. It's just amazing. And so by my junior year, I was starting to think like, oh man, I'd love to be a college coach. That's, that sounds amazing. And I didn't really know the ins and outs of it, but I love, you know, I was team captain and I, I just really enjoyed kind of that leadership role and also enjoyed the, the influence my coach had on me to kind of make me, I think the man I am today, I give him a lot of credit. Uh, he's been a big influence in my life. So I wanted to hopefully have a similar influence on, on others like I know a lot of coaches do. And so, um, yeah, finished up my career there, got my degree in, in business and finance, thought I wanted to be, um, you know, in the financial world, but always in the back of my head telling me, this isn't the path you want to go, Dave, you, you want to stay in the tennis world. But I, you know, gave into parent pressure, peer pressure, and got a job on the Mercantile Exchange in Chicago after I played on the, on the tour for about a year. And um, was miserable every second of every day um, in that job on the mercantile, mercantile exchange. And I said, I, you know, I'll go coach tennis for, you know, a dollar an hour rather than do this. And I think I ended up doing it for a dollar an hour because I, I took the men's coaching job at DePaul um, and was paid $10,000 for my, my efforts. But, you know, within a few weeks was like, yeah, this, this, is, this is for me. This is what I want to do. Um, and I wasn't that much older than the players on the team and, mm-hmm. and um, just had an amazing year. But during that time, my wife, Laura, uh, became due with our first son, Liam, wasn't really what we were planning. And uh, I was like, well, I probably need to go make a little bit more money than $10,000 a year to support uh, my family going forward. So 
was getting ready to go back into the the world of finance and just put my head down and uh I actually had an offer from Michael Hegarty to go be his assistant at Arkansas on the women's side and could make more money doing that. And then at the last second, Claire Pollard at Northwestern stepped in, offered me the job and was able to do a lot of camps and clinics and make ends meet and had three amazing years there. My last year, we were number one in the country and um, was uh, ITA assistant coach of the year and, and kind of uh, had a, a few opportunities that summer to move on. And so um, was hired as the, the head coach of, of the women's team at University of Oklahoma at, at 28 and uh, had eight years there full of ups and downs, uh, more ups than downs, but uh, decided to retire at 36. I knew that, that probably halfway through my experience at Oklahoma, I was starting to have very different feelings than I had my first year at DePaul and realized that I was ready to, to make a change and worked on my master's in sports administration, uh, completed that, knew I wanted to stay in, in tennis, in administration, and took an opportunity back home in Ireland for three years where I was managing a, a sports club back there, um, got a lot of administration experience, joined the board of directors for the Irish Tennis Federation, signed up for every committee I possibly could, just was, was determined then to try and find a role within tennis administration and uh three years later erica perkins left i was like oh that's that might be the job that i want and uh, went after it got it and here i am today nearly three years later and um still loving every minute of it like i did the the first uh first few weeks and months again not without its challenges but i know i'm really doing what i was born to do now so i'm very happy Wow, what a path. That's awesome. Um, well, we're very lucky to have you. And uh, thank you. So you've been with the ITA now for, you said, three years. Mm -hmm. And when you look back on your time as a coach, now that you're removed from it several <laughs> years and you have the experience you do now with the ITA, what do you think you might do differently if you were to go back now and do it again? There's a lot. I mean, I've, I've, uh, you know, the first few months out of it, you don't really give it a lot of thought. You're so busy. I mean, I'm moving internationally, new job, uh, new responsibilities, kind of left it behind and on you go with your life. But uh, over time, you know, as you have more conversations, whether it's with coaches, whether it's with former players, just having a little bit of space from it, you start to reflect on some of those things. And if I was to go back to it, you know, firstly, I look back on myself you know, five, 10 years, like, I just cringe, like, I'm going, oh, what, a, what a Muppet, you know, like, why, you know, there's some areas where I was overconfident, and there's other areas, I, I, I was not confident enough. And so I think, you know, finding a way to be humble in the areas that you think you're strong in, and also believe you're in yourself in the areas that you think you're weak in, and, you know, uh, attack, each of it, you know, the way that you want to, obviously, kind of from a performance standpoint, okay, do you double down on somebody's strengths and just try and shore up their weaknesses. But I think, you know, there's so many hats that college coaches wear, and, and you want to be the best in all areas that you can be. So that would be one area. The other area is parents. I mean, I used to rail against parents, like your, your kids, 18 years old, why, why are you calling me? Why are you emailing me? Your kid's an adult, like, leave me alone. And kind of why, you know, one of the reasons I got into college coaching, because I didn't want to deal with parents, but that's just the world we live in now. And, you know, an 18 year old isn't an 18 year old, you know, from two decades ago. And we had Tiff Jones on the 
podcast, I interviewed her and she, that's what the, the research shows that an 18 year old uh, these days has kind of the, the prefrontal cortex of a 13 year old from, you know, um, previous generations. So that, that's, that's an area where I think I'd put a lot more attention developing my relationships with the parents, mm-hmm. not waiting till things really hit the fan to now say, oh, by the way, this, you know, this occurred and that occurred and that's why we're here because these kids as well, I mean, some of them are talking to their parents like five times a day. I mean, again, can't wrap my head around that when my kid goes to college, he better not be calling me five times a day. But, you know, he, they're, they're only hearing one side of the story. So if your relationship's a little tenuous with one of your players, the parents are only hearing one side of the story and then it's just a matter of time before it blows up. Mm-hmm. So how do you ensure that the parent is not hearing from you all the time, but some of the time, um, and just recognize that that's going to be a part of the job. Now, I think I'd be more patient with freshmen. I think sometimes my expectations for freshmen were just, were just so unrealistic, like, and I feel terrible uh, for what I put some of them through. And, and so I'd be a lot more patient uh, with them, bringing them on, uh, having a longer onboarding process, having more conversations with them, uh, way before they get there and then checking in on them more regularly throughout that first year. I'd put a lot more time and attention there. I think I'd spend more time with athletic department staff. It's easy to get in your own silo, you know, and, and just kind of put your head down, do your own thing. But I think I could have learned a lot more, especially at the University of Oklahoma. It's an amazing athletic department. There's a wealth of knowledge in there. And um, I think I could have spent more time with other coaches, other administrators, really learning from them. Um, so those are a few things I'd, I I'd definitely do differently and just also understand that, you know, as, as a head coach, I mean, I, I love the development side of it. I love the physical, I, being on court, running with the players, pushing them, you know, to, to the edge on the court, designing practices. But ultimately the job, at, at, you know, at, at really any level has become a lot more complex and just recognizing that, you know, probably would be well served spending a little less time on the tennis court and more time in my office. Yeah. Okay. That's great. And it sounds like you really knew you wanted to change and to step away from coaching and to get more into the administrative side. But when you look back on coaching, what, what are some of the things I'm sure you still miss? What are some of those things? Mm. Yeah. A lot of people talk about the relationships with the players and, and I, I felt I miss the relationships with, with my peers, like, mm-hmm you know, working with, with Mark Artizone at DePaul, working with Claire Pollard at Northwestern, you know, the three assistants that I had at, at OU, Brooke Buck, Christina Moros, Boomer Saya. I mean, I love my time with those individuals and just kind of in the trenches together, you know, and then the men's coaches as well, you know, uh, Paul Torricelli at, at um, Northwestern when I first got there, Arvid Swan, uh, John Roddick, Paul Lockwood at, at OU, I just, I love those connections because they, they're the only people that really know what you're, what's going on, what you're dealing with. You know, nobody else can really relate. They're like, you're, you're the women's tennis coach. What are you stressed about? Like, well, like, well is that even a job? You know, is that a full-time job? I mean, those are, yeah. those are things I get from uh, people say back in Ireland, like they can't wrap their head around that this is a job and there's a lot of pressures that come yeah. with it. And and um, you're managing a lot of different pieces. So I really miss the relationships with those people and maybe why I love my job now because I get to connect with coaches on, on, uh, on a daily basis and, and just love the, 
love the network, love the community that we have. So that's probably the biggest part of it. The rest of it, I don't really miss Danielle. Yeah. I, I'll be honest. I, I just, it, I've, I've, I've put it behind me and knew I was ready for a change. And so proud of myself that I had the courage to step mm -hmm. away um, at the time and, and take a step back to try and take two steps forward. Yeah, that's not that's not easy to do for sure. Mm -hmm. So you talk about this, this community or network of coaching friends that you had and colleagues. I, I know this comes up a lot when I talk to coaches, like how how did you go about building that community? I mean, it probably happened very organically, but but for maybe a younger, newer coach that's listening to this and saying like, yeah, that's important. I really want to do that too, not just for personal happiness, but also maybe professional development. Like what would be some suggestions you might have on how to do that over time to a younger, newer coach? Yeah, it's, it's not easy. I mean, I got very lucky. I mean, I remember my first year with Claire uh, going out to national hard courts. And so straight away, I get to meet all of Claire's network, mm -hmm. um, you know, a bunch of coaches, their assistant coaches. I also got my coach, Michael Hegarty, who had, now, had by then moved over to the women's side. He's got a whole other network of coaches that he's friends with, their assistant coaches introducing me uh, to them. And, you know, then you've got people you played against maybe. Uh, whether it was internationally in, in my case or, or maybe when I came to college that are now coming up through the ranks. So I, I got very lucky. I don't know that most uh, coaches, you know, get to experience the same, you know, connection so early in their tenure. Mm -hmm. But there are plenty of opportunities. I mean, I, I you know, through our, say, our mentorship program, through, you know, what you're doing now with the credentialing program, Coach Up, you know, whether it's uh, signing up to be part of, of committees, mm -hmm. uh, whether it's our annual convention. I mean, I was just out at the NCAA championships in Illinois and there was a group of young coaches there that didn't have, didn't have teams playing, didn't have players uh, mm -hmm. participating in the individuals, but were out there really networking, putting themselves out there, trying to connect with coaches, make introductions, just, just, you know, going above and beyond. I mean, paying their own expenses to be there, you know, um, sharing rooms, whatever it took to, to, uh, to, to make those connections. And I think we need more of our coaches who are really, you know, want to be in this industry a long time, going a little bit outside their comfort zone um, on, on a semi-regular basis. They don't have to do it all the time, but also just picking up the phone or shooting an email. I think sometimes we're intimidated by, you know, these older, more experienced coaches. And, and really most of them are teddy bears. I mean, they put on a tough exterior and they walk around with a gruff face and, you know, competitive uh, face. Um, but really they're as willing to help anybody. Um, and, and, you know, Danielle, I mean, people aren't that secretive about the things that, that they do. I mean, we have people on the podcast, right, who are, are willing to share openly what they do. It's up to the person whether they want to execute or not. And, and unfortunately, a lot of people will say, oh, that sounds nice, but it sounds like a lot of hassle, so I'm not going to do it. But it's, yeah, I think it's, it's a combination of things, looking for opportunities that are, are there, that are, you know, kind of in your face in terms of convention and mm -hmm. and um, things that we do at the ITA, but also then, hey, can you identify five coaches that you would love to learn from and email all five of them and see if they have 20 minutes to get on a phone call? And you'll be surprised that 
90% will get back and will be willing to do it. Yeah, no, I, I agree. So uh, let's see. So you, when you first took this job at the ITA three years ago, and rather than being a coach, looking at the ITA, kind of seeing it from the ITA side of things, um, mm -hmm. what, did, what, what would you say you learned maybe in the first few months of the job that you didn't know or didn't consider when you were in your coaching positions? Yeah, it's... Um... It is fascinating being in this position now because with any job, you know, kind of membership, uh, you know, I worked in a club, so you have members that are very engaged, have very strong opinions. You have others that never use their membership, right? They don't mm -hmm. show up to use the, the tennis courts or the gym in the case of a club or, you know, they're just happy to pay their dues. And there's others that are kind of in the middle and can come, come in and out. And, and I think that's no different in our organization. Obviously, we'd like to have as many coaches as possible engaged on a, as much of a regular basis as possible. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, I was also on the operating committee. So I had a sense of our coach governance and the role that coaches play in making decisions. But I don't think I really appreciated just how much the ITA does with such so few resources. I mean, our, our, our staff, as you know, are, are completely maxed out. Um, you know, I can honestly say I've, I've never worked harder and it's easy because I love it so much. But, um, you know, with, with college tennis, yes, during this season, it's, it's full on and, you know, it's hard to get a day off. But, you know, with the ITA, it's, it's, it's year round. There's no, there's no break from it. You know, as soon as you get through one thing, you're already planning three, six, 12, 18 months out in advance. Mm -hmm. And so I don't think I fully appreciated that. Um, I, I don't think I was aware of just how well the ITA is run, you know, in terms of board of directors, in terms of our finances, in terms of the integrity in which the ITA operates. Um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's really a lot for our coaches to be proud of. Um, and that's, that's, you know, that's going to be hard for, for some coaches to, to hear. I understand that, but, um, you know, compared to a lot of other coaches associations, I mean, most Olympic sport coaches association look at the ITA and cannot believe all that we're doing. I mean, we are the gold standard when it comes to Olympic sports and, um, that that's, you know, a double-edged sword because people have very high expectations for us. Mm -hmm. um, maybe unfairly in terms of, you know, if a program's cut or something like that, or television, you know, the amount of resources we can put to things, um, they want us to be all things, all people. And, um, you know, we have our limitations, but we're continuing to try and grow and get better. So, uh, yeah, it's been an interesting learning curve, but uh, I've, uh, my positions also evolved through the years as well. And, and so, I'm continuing to take on more responsibilities in, in the business area of, of the ITA and, and leaving the fun stuff to you now. That's right. I know, I'm very lucky. Um, so I know you serve on, in addition to your role at the ITA, you're on the USTA Collegiate Pathway Committee and um, on a number of other outside committees um, beyond just the ITA. You mentioned the you know, even the board of governors for um, Tennis Ireland. So mm -hmm. I, I feel like you have a very big picture look at what's going on in the world of college tennis, but tennis more generally. And I wonder what, what's your current take on the state of college athletics post COVID we'll say, and mm -hmm. where do you think tennis falls in with everything else going on in the world these days? 
Yeah, I mean, look, it's it's. I, I'm I'm not going to lie. I'm worried. I mean, I I I do lose sleep over this. I I don't know where this is all heading, and and nobody does. That that's the interesting thing. As we speak with conference commissioners, you speak with uh, you know athletic directors with three decades of experience behind them they're scratching their head at all this and they're going we haven't seen anything you know this rate of change um you know ever and mm -hmm. and we don't know how it's all gonna end up and and that's not very comforting you know when you speak with this you know top top conference commissioner you're like okay hey, this this person has all the answers they're gonna tell us uh, where we're going and they have no clue yeah and so you know i I, yeah, I worry for Olympic sports in general. Um, you know, if we move to this, um, you know, employee model for student athletes for, for football and, and probably ultimately basketball, um, all bets are off as to what the future looks like because uh, that just changes the whole landscape uh, in a second. Mm -hmm. um, so there's serious consequences if, if those decisions are made. Um, you know, but on the positive side, I look at like the number of programs we have. Yes, you know, about 60 programs were canceled during COVID. Uh, since then, 37 have either been reinstated or um, are being established for the first time. So there's still an interest in adding tennis programs. Um, you know, are they going to be reinstated at some of the more, you know, well-known places such as Iowa and and Minnesota, which were kind of the ones that were in the news and the headlines a little bit more. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Um, you know, I, I think we we have to look at our sport as a whole. And like I said, I look at it from a, a global perspective and and serve, you know, for for a European uh, board of directors and everybody, especially in the Western world, is having the same challenges. How, how do we get more people interested in our sport? I know there was a boom through COVID. I don't know how long that's going to necessarily last. There's a lot of other opportunities, a lot of distractions. When I grew up in Ireland, there was, you know, four sports I could play, tennis being one of them. Now there's endless, you know, BMX, skateboarding, rock climbing, uh, lacrosse, whatever it is. I mean, there, there's so many opportunities there. So I think we need to look at our sport as a whole and, you know, and, and we can get into more of this, Danielle, just around like I was watching the French Open semifinals with Chilich and Rude the other day. I don't know if something was going on, but the stadium was like, I don't know, a, a third full maybe. This yeah. is semifinals of the French Open in, in France where, you know, tennis is quite popular and, and one of the leading sports. And so that, that makes me pause and wonder, you know, what is the future of our sport going forward? So yeah, I, I have so many things, so many concerns, worries, but I guess I come back to, we're still strong in terms of the number of programs that we have compared to a lot of other sports. I mean, in terms of the, the sports that are sponsored by, um, by athletic departments, I mean, I think we're in the top seven um, of all sports in terms of sponsorship. So across all five divisions. So that, that's, that's a strong point um, that, you know, we need to continue to, to, um, you know, be vigilant about and ensure that that doesn't change going forward to the best of our abilities. Uh, but there's other components such as, you know, um, TV that we'll get into some more, but I don't know. I'm kind of waffling now, Danielle. I, I, I'm, 
I, I don't have any good answers here, yeah. but I'm, I'm trying to take in as much information as possible and have that inform our strategy and get clear on, on what we, we truly can and cannot do. Like I said, people expect us to be all things to everybody. We can't. We need to partner with as many folks as, as we can, such as the USTA and, and other individuals and organizations and companies that can help move college tennis forward. Yeah. You have a really unique perspective because you were a college coach. You now work on the administrative side with college coaches. So you hear, you know, current coaches thoughts and opinions on all types of matters. Um, you're working with the USTA and college tennis partners externally. So I'm going to, I'd be curious to get your opinions and thoughts on a few hot topics involving college tennis today. And the first one is the topic of tennis uh, sorry, television and college tennis being on television. So for division mm. one, I know this has been talked about for years, even <laughs> when I was coaching, I'd be on countless calls discussing this. And I wonder like for D1 tennis, what do you think about this idea that it needs to be on television in order for it to be more relevant? I think it absolutely does. I mean, I don't think there's any denying that, that um, the world we live in right now, I think, you know, streaming obviously is, is growing and we're looking at the trends of younger generations and do they watch television? The answer is no, they watch YouTube and they watch highlights, but we still have a generation such as our generation, uh, generation X and the boomers that still engage with television. So there's still a, a period of time here where, um, you know, traditional TV broadcasting, linear broadcasting is still king. And mm -hmm. so, I think during this time period, we need to be on all these platforms. I mean, whether it's, um, you know, obviously the social media side of things, again, as we talk about what the ITA does, most of the coaching associations don't do any marketing. They're not doing social media. Our social media following has grown tremendously, but you have to be on all those platforms. It's not enough anymore just to be on Facebook. You have to be on Twitter. You have to be on TikTok. You have to be on Insta. Um, and same with TV. Uh, you know, we need to find ways, okay, uh, matches being streamed maybe on YouTube, uh, obviously track tennis, play site, do a great job um, mm -hmm. with, with their technology now. And those costs are coming down, fortunately for coaches. Uh, but then there's a whole other level, you know, there's other streaming platforms, whether it's ESPN plus, whether it's Amazon prime um, that again, uh, attract a larger audience. And then you've got the linear side of things that you've got. Yes. Tennis channel have a certain audience, ESPN have a bigger audience. You've got, you know, CBS, Fox Sports, you've got all these things. I think we need to be on all of them mm -hmm. and find ways to get as, as many matches on TV as possible. But it really starts with our NCAA championships. I mean, as a casual fan, we all know we don't, we don't tune in until the final rounds of something like the NBA finals are going on. I didn't watch an NBA match all year, but I'll try and watch every match of the finals. Mm -hmm. uh, same with the NFL, same with, um, well, premiership's different because I'll watch Liverpool every chance I get. So, but even with tennis, I hate to admit it, you know, I'm not, I'm not watching the first and second rounds of the French Open, but semifinals and finals, I'll be glued to it. And so that, that's, that's consumer behavior and, and we need to recognize that. So people get interest at the end of the season when everything's on the line. So it starts with our NCAA championships. And unfortunately for many years, uh, for uh, forever, from what I can gather, um, you know, when, schools i guess basically bid on an nca championship there's no bid, there's no broadcasting um requirement there so 
I don't know how it is for other sports. I think it's an area that the ITA up until now have been very hesitant to step on anybody's toes, whether it's the NCA, whether it's the host site. But going forward, I, I'm determined, Tim Russell's determined to, to try and have more involvement, more say in that process um, and, and, you know, gather the wishes of our coaches and, and try and express those succinctly and professionally mm-hmm. uh, with those that are hosting the tournament and the NCA tennis committee and the NCA powers that be, because I don't think they're doing as good a job with the tennis tournament as we would like. And that's our crown jewel. And until we get that right, I don't think we need to spend a lot of energy worrying about, you know, a match in February between two schools. I mean, if we can get that on, great. But the interest isn't there in February. That's there in May. So let's get that right. Then let's try and get our ITA indoor championships on television. Obviously, that's improved through the years. We brought on crack rackets. Um, you know, and, and um, you know, we've paid for the streaming, the cameras that need to be done, you know, we've invested in that more than in, in previous years, and that will continue to evolve. And we've come close a couple of times to getting a key sponsor mm-hmm. to sponsor that event that would pay for broadcasting because it's expensive, you know, it's about $40,000 uh, per day. And, um, you know, that's money that we need to find from additional sponsors. And, um, you know, we, we can't uh, just survive on, on, uh, team uh, memberships i mean that's only about uh, a quarter of our revenue so the it has to go out and fundraise and get sponsors for the other three quarters of our um, revenue on an annual basis and so we need to go out and find more money to get some of our championships on tv and it's something that's going to be strategic uh, priority going forward but i just keep coming back to the nca championships and Mm -hmm. that needs to be we need to figure that out. We need to get that right. And, and when we get that right, then um, I think more things will flow from that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I feel like you can't talk about getting tennis, college tennis on TV without talking about the F word format. So <laughs> <laughs> um, what do you think? I mean, you have so much knowledge and experience. You've been in so many meetings with different constituents. I mean, what do you think would be the ideal format for college tennis? Yeah, I mean, that's the thing with TV, right? When we speak with, with broadcasters, and, and that's the thing, I, I reassure our coaches that this is something we spend a lot of time on. I mean, we're trying to get as much information around this TV piece as possible because we see we're getting, we're falling behind. And when we speak with, whether well, it's people from ESPN, the Tennis Channel, Fox Sports, I mean, we speak with all these people. They're like, yeah, tennis is a nightmare. College tennis, you know, six courts. Uh, we don't know how long the match is going to go. You know, sometimes you make a decision at the last second to go from indoors to outdoors. Um, you know, it's just, it's, it's not easy to cover. And, you know, it's like, well, the golf channel covers 18 holes for the NCAA championships every year. So it can be done and it's been done before, but yeah, it's not, it's, it's, it's a tough sell. Um, you know, I come back to what does the casual, kind of tennis fan what are they familiar with right and they're familiar with the scoring system they see at the french open or wimbledon i i I say those because they're they're happening right now or about to happen with wimbledon and so that's what they're familiar with so firstly our format has to be very easy to understand it can't differ you know can't deviate too much from what we already have 
there can't be a break, I believe, especially at the beginning. I mean, our coaches, I was involved in the format change several years ago, and we were told, hey, you change this format, you'll definitely be on television. Well, we've less television coverage now than we did several years ago. So we obviously didn't go far enough um, or we were, we were not given all the information um, that we uh, were, were expecting at that time. But, you know, moving forward, I think it's a conversation we just have to continue to have. I struggle with the student athlete experience part of it, because even coming from Ireland, when I was told that you'll play a, a pro set of doubles, which at the time was eight games, I was like, I don't know, that's enough tennis for me. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, it sounds good, but a pro set, I've never even heard of what a pro, I didn't know what a pro set was. I've never played a pro set. I was like eight games. That, that just sounds stupid. But then when I came and played it, I loved it. And it was, it was, it was brilliant. And I got it. And, and when we made the change, uh, I think it was back in 2014 or 15 to the new format that we use now at division one, uh, division two and NAIA, I, um, I loved it as well as a coach. I thought it was great. It was easy to you know, adapt to our players got used to it quickly. I think everybody enjoyed it more, but we're probably going to have to go a step further. I mean, I'm, 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 you know, a lot of people say, well, doubles, the fans love the doubles. And again, if you watch the French open finals the other day with Coco Goff and, you know, again, I mean, there's, there's 15 people in the stands watching doubles. I don't, I don't think people love doubles as much as we think they do. What they love is that they come to a college match. It's six games. It's 40 minutes. It gets to a climax quickly and then they're like, okay, I got my fill. I showed up, I did my part and now I'm out of here. See you later. I'll check the, I'll check the score later today as to see how singles went. Mm -hmm. And if we did singles first, I must say we do, we do singles first with six games and doubles was two out of three sets. Everybody would think the singles is great and they'd leave after the singles. And Mm -hmm. so I think we either need to do simultaneous with the scoring that, um, that people are familiar with right now. Mm-hmm. And the same as the French Open, not three out of five sets on, on the men's side, but mm-hmm. two out of three sets, regular scoring. Somebody comes in, they see, okay, it's, it's you know, somebody's got to get to three or four points here to win. It's, it's easy to understand there's no break. Or we go to singles first. If it's, if it's tied three all or four two, you go to a doubles playoff, like a penalty shootout. So each doubles point would be worth one point. Um, I don't know if it's a 10 point breaker. I don't know if it's, Everybody plays one service game each, you know, first to three, or you play a two, tie break at two all. I don't know if it's a full set. Um, I know I did the college match day format several years ago against Oklahoma State, and it was one of the best matches I was ever a part of. It was so exciting. And, um, you know, people can kind of, people stick around, right, for a penalty shootout. They're not going to, you know, stick around for singles, and then it goes to this penalty shootout and say, oh, well, I've had my fill now, I'm going to go. I don't think they're going to stick around for another hour, hour and a half, but I think they'll stick around for another 20 minutes. And so I think it has to probably be one of those two formats, but then we come back to, okay, is that enough tennis for our student athletes, you know, outside of the top of division one who won't be on television? Is this really, do they care about this? Is this really something that they think is beneficial to our sport? Um, Is there kind of a trickle down effect? Um, I don't know. There'd be a lot of convincing to do, but I think if we are to advance our sport, we just need to keep changing with the times. People, people are, are busier. They have a lot more options, entertainment options. Their attention spans are shorter. And if we don't keep evolving with other sports, uh, we will get left behind if we haven't been left behind already.
Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Well, it's an ongoing debate, that's for sure. Uh, yeah. Probably not going to be resolved uh, anytime no. extremely soon. So no, no it's not. And, and uh, yeah, hopefully I haven't offended any, any people, but it's just, uh, this is you asked, you know, I'm looking at it from a number of different directions and, and uh, you know, knowing that there's no perfect solution and knowing there's no guarantees. I mean, mm -hmm. that's the thing. I mean, people sometimes want guarantees. Well, you know, like I said, a few years ago, we were told if we make the change that we definitely get on TV, that didn't happen. And, you know, but at least we tried. Uh, I don't know. I just think we need to keep evolving, keep, keep opening up our minds to the possibility of change because change is going to happen regardless whether we like it or not. So we might as well be on the front end of it. Right. No, yeah, for sure. So we talked about this a little bit earlier. You alluded to um, kind of the the role of a, of a coach these days, of a college tennis coach evolving well beyond just forehands and backhands. And now, especially in a post-COVID world where, you know, doing things like engaging with your community and having relationships in your athletic department and you know, doing a good job with fundraising and all of these other aspects are really, really important, maybe more than ever before. So for the young, younger, newer, next generation of coaches coming through, um, what would be some of your advice in addition to what you said earlier with building your network of friends and coaches and colleagues, what other advice might you have for that group of coaches? Yeah, like I said earlier, um, you know, a lot of people want us to be all things to everybody. Yeah. And we can't. And same with any, I guess, national governing body, whether it's the USTA, whether it's, you know, Tennis Ireland or some other federation. I think some people think that those organizations are going to come in, swoop in and save the day. And I don't I never that's that's what I found interesting, like as a coach, I never thought for a second like the ITA was responsible for the health and safety of my program mm -hmm. uh, I that was on my shoulders that was you know myself and my assistant coach and whoever else was involved in the program I mean that that I, I wasn't looking to the USTA I wasn't looking to the ITA it was like no I this is this is on me I, I've got to I've got to make this program relevant and so it's not to say that there's ways in which those organizations can help and they're all filled with well-intentioned, high-integrity individuals that are dedicated to the sport, but they don't have all the answers and mistakes are made and things don't happen as quickly as we'd like sometimes. I mean, that's the thing with tennis. I mean, people want to point to, you know, newer sports coming through pickleball. Let, let's see where pickleball's at a hundred years from now. You know, have they gone through the trials and tribulations that, that tennis has? Have they built, you know, maybe too big a bureaucracy around the sport um, just as things get added and legacy programs and personalities and egos and politics it's it's easy to you know jump on the bandwagon with some new sport but tennis has a lot of a lot of different parties involved in it and i just would encourage i guess the next generation to go you know have the attitude that look no, nobody's here to save me this is on me um it's not to say i can't maximize the resources that these organizations might be able to provide, but, but it's gotta, it's gotta come from me. So that that's one thing. And I don't mean that, you know, flippantly or negatively, I think it's just a mindset that, that I think would, would behoove some of our coaches, um, you know, getting into the industry just to know, okay, this, this is, 
this is my train to run and I'm, I'm, I'm going to do the best job I possibly can. I'd say also when I speak with younger coaches, sometimes, you know, they express to me, you know, just how, how busy they are. And I get that. Yeah, this, this is the job. It's, it's, there, there's a lot. And especially when you're managing two programs and maybe 30 individuals, you know, 15 on each roster, maybe more. I mean, that, that's a huge amount, but, but this is the job. You know, the, the grass isn't necessarily greener anywhere else. Uh, every, every job has its challenges, but, you know, there's so many great things about being a, being a college coach as well and recognizing that, and you're going to have some very busy periods, but you're also going to have flexibility at times as well. So mm-hmm. I think, you know, remembering that, yes, you might be going through a tough time now, but you will have some space to regroup regather your thoughts and, and get back to it. Um, so just uh, manage those, those, those storms to the best of your ability. I think professionalism and sportsmanship, uh, I think that's an area just the tennis industry as a whole, I think needs to improve upon. I just think sometimes, you know, whether it's say uh, resumes or cover letters that we receive from coaches for jobs that we have here at the ITA, you know, we recognize a lot of mistakes, uh, typos, not following through with, if we ask for a cover letter, a resume, and a list of references, we'll then send all those things, because if you're missing one, you haven't followed the instructions for the job. So I'd imagine that's happening when people are applying for, for jobs, um, you know, with universities, and just how do you conduct yourself around the athletic department? I mean, I was guilty of this, I've maybe said this in the podcast, you know, I show up for a staff meeting, and I, you know, come off the court, I'm in my shorts and t-shirt, I'm sweating because I've just done a couple of hours individual and, and now I'm running over to the staff meeting and I'd look around and all my coaching peers are, are dressed up like it's a business meeting. Mm-hmm. And I'm kind of like, I'm kind of slightly dismissive of it. Like you guys aren't real coaches. You know, I'm a real coach because I'm, I'm here sweating with my tennis racket. And it's like, you know, really looking at them going, well, maybe they're onto something here. Maybe they're looking at things, their job a little differently than I am. Maybe they're delegating certain things to assistant coaches or volunteers if, if they have them. Um, or, you know, understanding that this is a business meeting and they need to put their best foot forward. And this is their time in front of administrators, athletic directors, you know, so just, just you know, and, and also how do you interact with officials? You know, some of the things that we hear from time to time. Are, are concerning, you know, how do you, how do you write an email, even, you know, emails that I receive, like, are you seeking to understand, or are you just coming out of the gates and giving your opinion without all the information and assuming the worst and assuming that, you know, I'm the worst, or, you know, the people that made the decision are terrible people, like, no, I mean, send an email, hey, you made this decision, uh, or your operating committee made this decision, I'd like to understand how it was made so I can better understand and formulate a, 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 an educated uh, opinion on it. Yeah. Um, so things like that. And then, you know, that leads into sportsmanship as well. Um, you know, again, we talk about golf being on the golf channel. I, I mean, their level of sportsmanship in the golf world. I mean, you are shamed to death if you cheat or do something untoward on the golf course, right? Mm-hmm. And we're an individual sport as well, but it seems to be that, but it's like, how do we 
ensure a higher level of sportsmanship how you know comes from from the top and how our coaches and look sometimes you get players and they're just off the rails and you're trying to be patient and trying to help them through and they make mistakes um but you want them moving in the right direction and you know but if the players see a, a coach going nuts at an official or you know breaking rackets or throwing stuff or yelling at people then you know they're going to feel entitled to do the same thing so you know I, I think that's an area and also if you want to get other jobs I mean yeah. I got the job at OU it wasn't just because my references were calling they're also calling other coaches yeah. you know against who you who you competed against and fortunately those coaches had good things to say about me because if they didn't I wouldn't have got the job so mm -hmm. I think the other area is seeking out mentorship obviously we have our mentorship program but I think sometimes I know I did when I started at the poll, it's like, okay, well, this is what my coach did with me mm -hmm. and it worked for me. So it's going to, it's going to work for everybody else. Not realizing that my personality is, is maybe a little different, right? If you want to coach, if, if you want to coach, your personality is already a little different than a lot of your teammates, right? I mean, mm -hmm. my mindset was a little different to 85% of the players that I played with. And, and there's a certain leadership component. There's a certain, you know, uh, drive there that you have. You have your expectations are maybe a little higher for yourself and for others. Um, but that's not how everybody operates. And so you need to recognize that, okay, I had this experience that worked for me. It's not necessarily going to work for others. Can I find a, another coach with maybe a different coaching style or philosophy to the coach that I had and maybe learn some things from them? so that now I can go and, and have a, a broader view as, as to how I want to do this job. I don't, my personality is different from my coach's personality. So why am I mimicking, you know, what he wanted to do? So that's another area I'd, I'd encourage. And then lastly, like I said earlier, like I look back at myself and like at 28 becoming a head coach and I'm like, oh my God, guy was such an idiot. Um, and, and so, you know, don't be so sure of your opinion. You know, it's like yeah. if, if everybody can read Adam Grant's book, Think Again, like I, I wish every human being could read that book, but every coach needs to read it and just recognize like, you know, I need to keep evolving. I need to keep changing. This was my opinion, but let me let me challenge that opinion. Let me see what was my role in, in this mistake or this issue or this lack of communication or something breaking down with a player or administrator, what was my role in it? So I know that's a lot, Danielle, but no, that's um, great. this is, this is the only opportunity I'll get to be on the, <laughs> the podcast. So I'm trying to jam it all in. Advantage of it. No, it's great. That's, that's such good advice. I, I agree with all of that too. Um, mm -hmm. So let's talk about maybe the other end of the spectrum. So that would be maybe for coaches, just starting out early on in their career, but what mm. about coaches who are maybe nearing the end, whether it's just retirement, it's been a long career in college coaching, or maybe they're thinking like you did, you know, I, I want to try something else other than college coaching. So what advice might you give for those coaches thinking about leaving the profession, pro probably keeping in mind that, you know, this has been for some people, for many coaches, their identity. I mean, maybe they played college tennis, now they're coaching, mm they played junior tennis. I mean, they are, they have been known as Dave, the tennis player, Dave, the <laughs> tennis coach. And then that sort of comes to an end and it's like, well, now what, you know, I mean, that's, mm. that can be sometimes I know a really big 
shock and an adjustment. And you mentioned courage, having the courage to step away yourself. Like, what advice would you give to coaches in that position? Mm. Well, firstly, Daniela, yeah, I hate to hear when coaches are feeling a little burnt out or, or thinking stepping away. I mean, we want to keep as many coaches in this industry as possible. I mean, that's another thing we didn't touch upon, you know, what is the future, but there could come a point where we have more college tennis programs than coaches available to fill those spots in certain parts of the countries, which scares, again, scares the life out of me. Um, and so I, I would encourage coaches that are feeling that way to firstly maybe find somebody that they can talk to that they trust in that um they you know can really kind of lay it all out there and just have somebody listen because sometimes i think as coaches as well right we we are in this leadership position and we want to you know act like we have it all together and all figured out and maybe hard to be vulnerable but finding that person and and if there are coaches feeling that way and they want to call me absolutely i'm i've talked to many coaches about this so um i i'm happy to to do that at, at any point um but i think coaches trying to figure out is it just they've had a, a rough year or a, a rough semester or just one incident that's really kind of i guess shaken them um to start questioning what their future might be in this this industry um and i think you've got to figure out okay is it just is is this short term if i actually take a break from it uh will i miss it and, and come back to it and and i just need a break rather than quitting from it all together uh, and so um again e easier said than done right uh you know if you're in a in a position that there's no guarantees you'll get that position back if you stepped away from it and went back to school and did a master's or went and did another job but i think if you have some experience behind you there's going to be avenues for you to get back in it might not be exactly the position you had um, but you will, I guess, rise back up the ranks probably pretty quickly again, if that's something you want to do. And so I think the other part of it as well, I mean, I figured out quite early on that I wasn't, I wasn't a lifer in the coaching industry. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I, I did have a, a kind of a mentor who was a former college coach who had made that transition was in sports psychology at that, at that time and was able to kind of walk me through how he did it how he thinks about it and kind of talked talked a lot about this parallel career and mm -hmm. how do you start aligning some other things and that's when i went back and got my masters in in sports administration um, started joining committees i started writing for tennisrecruiting.net um, and and you know kind of start prepping myself for this change that i knew was ine inevitable and so, um, you know, again, as we talked about coaches, you know, you're maybe not as busy as, as you think you are. Yeah, if you really want something and you've made your mind up to do it, you can do it. And so you'll find the time to build in those things. So, you know, I think it's that transition was a lot easier for me because I had several years building up to it rather than and, and fortunately, it was my decision to retire. It's not like you know, I was fired and I was like, whoa, what am I going to do now? Um, my whole identity was tied up in this. It's like, no, I was intentional about how this was all going to play out and, and it played out the way that I wanted it to. So you've got to be intentional about that. And then also, yeah, what, what are you willing to sacrifice? I mean, I was willing to take a pay cut to go back 
um, to Ireland to get, you know, experience in this other world and in sports administration. And there was a lot of other benefits to me moving back to Ireland and exposing our children to culture back there and my family and all the rest of it. So there's a lot of reasons for that decision, but I was willing to take that pay cut. And, and a lot of people aren't, they're just, they're just, you know, they've got to a certain level, you know, of, of lifestyle and expectation and, and some people can't, right? I mean, family circumstances, um, financial circumstances, it's, it's not, not for everybody, but you're probably going to have to sacrifice something, whether it's the flexibility that you have with your job, whether it's, you know, financial, whether it's decision-making, there's probably something you have to be willing to give up, not all the time, but some of the time. And, um, so yeah, there, there's a lot there, Danielle. It's, it's, uh, it's it's different for everybody um i have one story to tell you have a story to tell um but again happy always happy to chat with coaches who are who are maybe struggling and, and trying to figure out what's next for them yeah no that's so great because sometimes you're right it is hard you, you don't necessarily want to talk to your coaching colleagues about that or mm -hmm. anyone in your specific athletic department but just like you had your friend and that was the sports psychologist i think having that resource is really important so Mm -hmm. That's great. Um, wow. Well, this has been fantastic. Um, <laughs> I've really enjoyed this. I have very big shoes to fill now taking over season four. <laughs> uh, um, but thank you so much for uh, sharing all your thoughts with us and for all your great work in the ITA. And um, yeah, any final closing thoughts? um well no this has been uh been a blast uh, um you know i've got to reconnect with a lot of coaches on the on the podcast but also got to know a, a lot of new coaches that i hadn't met before or, or or knew much about so to learn their stories and and uh, get to develop a relationship with them has been mm -hmm. has been yeah such a such a thrill for me like i said this is the my favorite part of my job is interacting with coaches even if sometimes they're mad at me um i still uh still um still enjoy um you know hearing their perspectives and, and their thoughts and and i take it all in in stride and and try to implement um you know any good ideas people have i mean that's most of what we're doing like stealing stuff like this podcast um, you know, it, it evolved. We were thinking about having conversations with coaches and webinars and things like that. And felt eventually, you know, came together. Okay, well, let's just do a podcast. Every, every second person and their dog has a podcast these days. So why can't the ITA? So I think, um, yeah, it's, uh, I think you're going to have a lot of fun with it. And maybe I'll do the odd podcast uh, here yes. and there um, as, as uh, if you'll allow me. But um, <laughs> for the most part, I'm passing it over to you now because, uh, I have so many other things that I'm trying to tackle. So I'm so glad you're on board to take a lot off my shoulders. So, um, so yeah, we'll leave it there, Danielle. Okay. Thank you. Sounds good. Well, we'll definitely have you on as a guest again or a guest host up to you, but you're not, you're not leaving us completely. <laughs> okay. Good, good All to right. know. Good to know. Thanks. Danielle. All right. Thank you.